Well, our text for this morning is Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8 and verses 7 to 13. You'll find that on page 1200 in your pew Bibles, page 1200. Today in our text, we're going to see some of God's magnificent grace in, in what is arguably the most incredible manner in Scripture. Now, that's a big statement because God's grace is evident in every chapter of his word. And I hope you recognize that, that we see it even amidst the most severe aspects of judgment, his grace glowingly comes out. Well, even more so in our text today. And the expressions of his grace amidst all of these judgments and other elements are so stunningly portrayed. But God's grace in the presentation of the new covenant in what we're going to look at today is one of the most glorious expressions of grace in Scripture. It's hard to parallel this idea in our world today because it is so magnificent. You know, as we come to Memorial Day, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we can find a sale at almost every store. If you want to buy a car, if you want to buy clothes, if you want to buy sporting goods equipment, it's all on sale this weekend. And so everybody is trying to get you into their stores to increase their bottom line, which is just fine because they recognize that we all enjoy a good deal. Everyone likes to buy something on sale. Um, the few times that my wife goes out shopping, she is very careful about the money that she spends, but she is quick to tell me about the sales that she got. And perhaps some of you other wives have that same propensity, which is good that you understand that. Because again, we all like to get something on sale. So retailers continually have these. Well, today our text reflects something in kind with that. Because it reflects a deal of the most inconceivable nature. And this is where our title for our message comes from today. The greatest deal in history. It's our title for this morning's message. The greatest deal in history. Now it's been a while since we've been in Hebrews. So just a couple reminders are in order so that we don't lose sight of the context about all that we've seen in this glorious book. The, the, we want to remember that the book of Hebrews is written to Jewish believers. This is critical for us. Because if we're to understand the import of what's being presented, we have to place ourselves back in that mindset. It is by application brought to us and applicable to us in the New Testament church age today as Gentiles. But this book was written to the Jewish believers in the early church. As well, we need to be reminded that there were three different audiences that the author addressed that he knew existed within the church. Those same three audiences which exist in every church. There were the committed believers to the Lord, those who were sold out and ready to give their lives for Christ and to grow in obedience and love as they assess themselves. There were those who were there each week and thought that they were believers, but really did not have that commitment, did not desire to grow. They did not have that burning heart to recognize their own sin and to assess their own souls. They were what we might just call pew warmers. They were there, but they really weren't doing much 
to grow and to participate in the church. These were not believers. They thought they were because they were in the body, but they were not. So there were the true believers, those who thought they were believers and were not, the false believers. And then there was the third group, the ones who outrightly did not accept Christ as Savior. And they knew that. They were there, they were committed to the Jewish system and not committed to Christ. But they were there because that was where the Jewish church was meeting. Well, those same groups exist in every church today. So we want to remember who the audiences were, who was being written to, and we want to remember above all the main theme of the book, which was the superiority of Jesus Christ. We've seen his superiority evidenced through Hebrews in so many ways. We've seen the superiority of his name above all names in the first verses of chapter 1. We've seen his superiority over the angels this was a challenge for the Jewish church because many of them thought the angels actually advised God and were those closest to God. We've seen that Jesus is superior to Moses. Moses was the great prophet of the Hebrew nation. He is the one who spoke with God face to face. He is the one who God called a friend. And they've shown us how clearly Jesus is superior to Moses. How he has a superior rest that the Sabbath day rest, as wonderful as it was, as important as it was, was far exceeded by the eternal rest promised by the Lord. The superiority to Abraham was also shown, that Christ was greater than Abraham and this one who was the hallmark of faith. And now in this last section, we see Jesus Christ's superiority to the priesthood. Here's where we really need to have our, our glasses on and place ourselves back in that first century church because we don't understand the importance of the priesthood. But they did. It was everything to them. All of their lives, generation after generation, were all committed to following the priesthood, following the Levitical law. So now a change in that was a massive change for them. It was very difficult for them to grasp. We have to recognize how big of an issue that was. That's why this is the largest section in the book of Hebrews. Began all the way at the end of chapter 4 and verse 14, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 10. From 4.14 to the end of chapter 7, we're an introduction. He spends all that time introducing this idea of Jesus' superiority to the priesthood. And amidst these major sections of Christ's superiority, we have the warning passages. These passages that have escalated in intensity all the way through to show the dire consequences of those who will not commit to following Christ, primarily focused on that second audience, those false believers. So now as we dive into Jesus' priesthood, superiority over the priesthood, and his priesthood, chapter 8 became the introduction to the formal body of that discussion. We started in verses 1 to 6 with the first comparison, and we remember that there are six comparisons in this section from chapter 8 to chapter 10. The first comparison was the comparison of the ministries. We saw Jesus' superiority in his heavenly ministry as high priest over the earthly ministry 
of the Levitical priesthood. Now we come to our second comparison, and it is the comparison of the covenants. The comparison of the old covenant to the new covenant. Now remember, we've, we've just covered each of the covenants over the past several weeks. We began and we talked about creation and how there was an establishment of God's plan with man. But of course, the fall changed all of that. So then God began to reinstitute these covenants to reestablish his relationship with man. As Adam sinned, and as sin continued, as Cain killed his brother Abel, as Cain's son Lamech killed a young man for making fun of him, and murder and wickedness continued to the point of Genesis 6-5 and God's destruction of the entire earth and his removal of man from the ground, the Noahic covenant began to restore that. It restored man to the ground. We saw the restoration continue into the Abrahamic covenant where now God's relationship with man was restored. From there, we moved to the Mosaic and Levitical covenant or covenants. And those are what we refer to as the old covenant. That was the first bilateral covenant. The Mosaic covenant required obedience of the people. The others, the Noahic and the Abrahamic, they were what we call unilateral. They did not depend upon man's obedience. God did all of the work, but not in the Mosaic covenant, not in the old covenant. There was a responsibility of the people to be obedient. So then we moved on to the Davidic and New Covenant, and we're going to see just as each of those texts and each of those covenants telescoped one into another, that same connectivity moves into our text today. So with that, we go to our text and our title, The Greatest Deal in History. And this is the greatest deal in God's most amazing grace as it's shown to us. Now, although we begin in verse 7, this actually, verse 6, is the introduction to our text. It, it is one of those places where a verse ends a section and begins another one. It is the beauty of the writing of Hebrews. And we've seen that so often. This is one of the most beautifully structured and constructed books in the New Testament. It's one of the most elaborate and one of the most I I important with regards to that structure. And here in verse 6, we have a, a conclusion to the comparison of ministries and a launching off into the comparison of covenants. Notice that verse 6 begins by restating this theme of the book of Hebrews. And, and as we come to this verse, let me give you our first point for our morning. It is the coming covenant. The coming covenant in verses 6 to 8. Let's take a look again at verse 6. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. So this begins our first point, the coming covenant. As, as I said, verse 6 restates the theme of Hebrews where it says, but now he has obtained 
a more excellent ministry. The ministry of Christ is far superior to anything we've seen. And we continue to have different terms that compare what Jesus is doing to the old system. We've, we've seen the term better than often employed. Well, here he ramps it up a bit more. He says it is a more excellent ministry. It is something that is beyond consideration. It is the most excellent that can be brought forward from a ministerial point of view. And then it tells us how much. With the term by as much as. That, that term by as much as can also be translated as by so much more. He's showing us that there is, there is a whole nother level that the Lord's ministry is rising to here. And it's relating the quality of one item to another. It is the comparison of the quality of Jesus' ministry. We understand quality. When we go to a, a store to buy something, we can buy the name brand or we can buy the store brand. If I want to buy a can of green beans, I can spend over $2 to get the name brand or I can, for around a buck, I can get the store brand. So we understand the comparison of quality. And that is the comparative nature that's being shown to us here. Jesus' ministry is more excellent, and it tells us why. Because he is the mediator of a better covenant. Now, what is that mediator? It is an arbitrator. It is a go-between. Jesus is the go-between between God and man. And in that role, he is far superior. So it brings us to the question, a far superior than what? What was the old mediator that he's superior to? Well, it was the mediators of the old covenant. It was the Old Testament priests. We've talked about the high priestly system and how the problem really with the old covenant were the priests. They were sinful men just like all of us. So there was no way that they could affect true restoration because they would immediately sin as we do each and every day as soon as the sacrifices were offered. So Jesus was far superior. We see now why the comparison is so radically increased because Jesus' ministry is much more excellent. For he was not a sinner, but one who was sinless and perfect. The old covenant has a specific mediator as well. Galatians 3 and verse 19 tells us Moses was a specific mediator of that covenant. And we saw Moses do some amazing things, didn't we? I mean, when we think about the children of Israel, as soon as Moses goes up on the mountain and he's up there for 40 days and 40 nights, he receives the tablets written on by the very finger of God and he comes back down the mountain and what have they done? They've thrown in all their earrings and Aaron's made this golden calf. And God's ready to wipe them out. And what does Moses do? He intercedes. And over and over again, we see Moses interceding. We see the sons of Korah attacking Moses, attacking Aaron, attacking Miriam. And he doesn't attack back. He goes, let's just go to God. Let's let God decide this for us. 
He has that perfect attitude. But yet he wasn't perfect either, was he? No, we know that when God told him to go and strike the rock to bring forth water, as the children of Israel grumbled and complained like they always do, I'm so glad I never grumble and complain, aren't you? And he struck the rock twice. And of course, we know that that rock from 1 Corinthians chapter 10 was the Lord Jesus Christ that he had struck. So Moses was not a good mediator either because in his anger, he was not allowed to enter the land. What a wonderful application for us and reminder about anger. You know what James 1.20 says? That the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. We must not be angry. And so quickly we come to it, beloved. We must recognize that the only justified anger in Scripture is when God is offended, not when we are. Moses failed. Moses was an imperfect mediator, but not Jesus. Jesus was superior to Moses, and he was superior as a mediator, as has now been established. Jesus, as the sinless high priest, is a more excellent mediator, and he mediates a better covenant in verse 6. But what is that better covenant? We're not told about that. We're just said that he is a mediator of a better covenant. Well, we're going to see in the coming verses exactly what that is. But one thing it does tell us at the end of verse 6 is that better covenant is built on better promises. What are these promises? Well, we discussed them a few weeks ago in the Mosaic Covenant. You might remember these. Remember those two critical chapters from the Old Testament when we talk about covenants. Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. Write those down, read them, keep them in front of you. Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28. They are the chapters that reveal God's blessings for covenant obedience and his curses for covenant disobedience. Well, here's some of the promises to summarize Leviticus 26. God promises continued provision. He says that you will not lack rain and that you will not lack harvest from your ground. Now, we are somewhat remote. Not many of us are farmers anymore, although a few of you do a little backyard gardening and we had the treat of enjoying a little of that this week and that produce was amazing. But we understand that if your livelihood came from the ground, that the need for rain at the proper time, not so heavy as it would wash out the crops, and the continual provision of the ground to feed your family throughout the year and to be able to make you income so that you could trade for other goods was very, very important. And God says that there would be no lack of provision. That is his covenant promise, one of them that also connects us back to the whole idea of the ground. This is the beginning of man. It is our beginning, beloved. It's what we read about in Romans 8. It is the ground that receives the curses of our sin. Why is the earth longing to be free from the horrors of this sinful world? Because it is the unwilling recipient of the wickedness and blood that man sheds. The ground is the vital part 
to which we are tied. As we saw from the Old Testament, Adam's very name connects to that ground because he is integrally connected to it from the ground he was made. From dust you were made and to dust you will return. So he gives us provision from the ground. Not only provision, but uh, more of the promises are protection and peace. God says that you will have protection from your enemies. You will have protection from the wild beasts. Now, you know, we think today because we we live in in homes that are secure, that have been built to withstand hurricanes and, and other horrific natural forces, we don't think much of, of wild animals. But let's stop and consider that we lived in a tent for a minute. And I've shared with you a few times what it felt like for me camping out in the mountains of Idaho near some of the areas where there were grizzly bear. That tent, it isn't much security. But God says you will have peace from, you will have security from these animals. I will give you protection. So he says you'll have provision, you'll have protection. Another promise is proliferation. He says that they will be fruitful and multiply. Well, that rings some more bells, doesn't it? That's all the way back to Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth into the Noahic covenant at the end of Genesis chapter 8. He tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It goes on into the Abrahamic covenant where he tells Abraham that your seed will be so numerous it will be as the stars of the sky. God promises this proliferation for obedience. So he promises protection and peace, provision, proliferation. And lastly, God promises that he will dwell with them. Now, these are all the old promises. Wonderful. God's dwelling with us. God is here. We see the Shekinah glory. Would that not be amazing to recognize all of that? These are good promises. Provision, peace, proliferation, God's presence. These are the old promises. So what is going to be better? If these are good, these amazing expressions of God's grace, but with the new covenant, they will be better. And we're going to see what some of that better looks like very shortly. And all of this is the coming covenant. But before we get to these better promises, we have a problem that arises in verse 7. The whole verse is written to make us stop and ask what's going on. Look at it again with me. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. We read that and we go, what's going on here? Well, that's exactly how it's structured. It's meant to make us stop and ask what's going on. The first part of the sentence is a conditional statement. And the way that it is written, it is expecting a negative response. It reveals that there was a problem. And the problem needed to be fixed. Now, we all relate to that. Uh, uh, things in our world are always breaking down. We had uh, a doorknob that broke down. We had a microwave that broke down. Uh, we've had a battery in our car that we've been wrestling with going back and forth. These things just have to be taken care of, and they have to be fixed. So the question becomes, what is the fix for this situation? Well, before we understand this fix, we have to recognize the response that's coming and that's expected based on the second half of the verse, that negative response. 
if there was no problem, then there wouldn't have needed to be a second covenant. And the unspoken part is that we did need a second covenant. And verse 6 told us that we have it. It's, it's already been given. It is the new covenant. And it's one that's far superior. So, of course, our inquiring minds want to know what the problem is. What is it that had the fault? Is it the covenant? Was that the problem? Did God give a covenant that was faulty? We look back at chapter 7 and verse 11, and we see a little bit of that. In fact, look back with me at Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 11. It says back there, Now if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek, and not be designated according to the order of Aaron. The verse is telling us that even here, there was a problem. There was an, a need for another priest. The Levitical system was not effective. There was no perfection that could come through that priesthood. So it was through the priesthood because it was there that the people received the law. This is why it's so important. The people had to recognize that the priesthood was everything in their religious world. It was their only connection to God. We, we can't misunderstand how vital that is. In our day, we are so blessed that we can go directly to God in prayer. The veil has been rent. Jesus has paid the price. We can go and we have direct access to the Father. But not so then. Only through the priesthood. It was the only way that they got their connection to God. And now we find that there is a problem with it. So the problem was either with the law or it was with the priests. Well, Romans 7 and verse 12 helps us answer which of those two was the problem. Was the problem the law or the priests? Listen to Romans 7 and verse 12. It says, so then... The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So there is no problem with the law. In fact, it is, it is holy and the commandment also holy and righteous and good. So well, where does that leave us? Well, if there's no problem with the law, the other component were the priests. The priests are sinful. They can't carry out their role and neither can the people. And this is just what the beginning of verse 8 confirms as well, where it says, for finding fault with them. To find out who the them is to whom God found fault with, y'all remember how we get to that answer, don't you? We work backwards through the text to find the next plural reference to that pronoun. Whenever you find a pronoun in the Bible that you don't know who it's talking about, and he, a she, a them, you just start looking backwards till you find the direct reference. Well, if we start looking backwards from verse 8 to find out who them is, it's not in verse 7, because that's just talking about the covenant. And we're looking for something plural, them. It's not in verse 6, because that is the singular he speaking of Jesus. 
Going further back to verse 5, it's talking about God at the end, also singular, not our answer. But verse 4 talks about those who offer gifts. This is where we find our answer. This is the plural context of the comparing ministries. And in verse 4, it is the ones being referenced who are the priests. They are the ones who offer gifts according to the law. This confirms our assessment where the fault lies. It's not the law or the covenant, but it's with the high priesthood. Notice how the coming covenant begins by revealing a weakness of the old system. The Lord doesn't just charge in and say, here's something new, so we're just going to throw out the old. I got a better plan for y'all, so don't worry about that old thing we do, but here's something new. No. He explains that there is something broken. There's something that isn't working. There's something that's faulty. And he isn't just saying, go buy something new because it's on sale or, or go get a new battery because it'll make your life easier. He makes them see that there is a fault or a weakness. Beloved, this is a crucial understanding and consideration in our lives. Because just like the priests, we too are not faultless. There is a weakness. And that weakness is sin. And we all have it. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Beloved, your response to that consideration immediately indicates what your relationship with the Lord is like. If you reject the idea that you have this problem, then your weakness is eternal. Because if you, if you will not recognize that you have a sin problem, then you are eternally separated from Christ. Because that is the first step that is mandated for one to grow and to know the Lord. If you accept the idea that you have a problem, but believe that you fully know your problem and that you've got it under control, then your problem isn't eternal, but it is terminal. Because you think that you can control your sin. That there are no other areas where you offend God. In that case, your weakness is terminal because you can't grow in your depth of relationship. You'll never grow to understand more of God's love for you if you don't see how you fall short. Your problem may even grow worse. It may even become eternal if you begin to think that you no longer have a sin problem. Those who believe that they have or even can achieve sinless perfection are in this camp. Only when you know that you have a severe problem that needs treated do your weaknesses move from terminal to temporary. Only then can your weakness be something that you can deal with. Only when you realize that you have a weakness that is beyond your control that you seek the solution that exists only in God because that solution, beloved, is daily growth in obedience to Christ. Growth in his word. Not reading it as we would uh, just a, a book or a novel because we need to continue moving from beginning to end, but we read it like we would when we're stranded out in the middle of the desert in our car. We're opening that owner's manual to find the specific area that's gonna solve our problem. 
This book deals with the specific areas of our heart problems. But we have to read it as such. We have to allow it to be a mirror to our lives. So the question you all must ask is, what kind of problem do I have? Is it eternal? Is it terminal? Or is it temporary? It's a vital and necessary question for us. And the recognition of the fault was the necessary prerequisite to the coming covenant. And once we understand that, then we're prepared for the second point, which is the conditions of the covenant in verses 8 to 12. The conditions of the covenant. Look at those verses with me, if you would, beginning in verse 8. Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them out, took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all will know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more." The text is the new, command, new covenant as taken from Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31 and verses 31 to 34, actually. And if you go back and compare those verses directly to our text, you'll see a few differences. Those differences are because that text that we have in Hebrews is taken from the Septuagint. That is the, the Greek translation of the Hebrew text. But it's essentially the same and, and definitely the same meaning. I'll, I'll leave the one verse with a little distinction to you good Bereans to seek out and, and we can talk about that on Wednesday night. By the way, we're right in the middle of the new covenant in Ezekiel's text. The Lord beautifully working this all together in his divine providence and you'd be abundantly blessed to join us on Wednesdays as we have that discussion. But in our second point, the conditions of the covenants, there are five conditions. There's one in each verse. Our first condition is in verse 8, and it's the presentation. The presentation. The presentation introduces the new covenant to us. It is our first condition, and it begins with the emphatic introduction of the time where it says, Behold, days are coming. That behold, it, it grabs our attention. It lifts us up and say, okay, what am I supposed to behold? What am I supposed to be paying attention to? And the word days becomes the next most important element because it shows us that the covenant is coming in our time, in our days. It's not an, an end times prophecy, which we'll have to wait until the eternal state and the Lord's return. This is something that's coming in our time and days. We'll see this word days is used three times, actually, in the conditions of the covenant. Jeremiah is looking forward to these days of the new covenant. But if we look back to verse 6, 
the two perfect verbs show us a past action with ongoing results that tell us that this is in place now. Look there at verse 6 where it says, He has obtained a more excellent ministry. And then at the end, which has been enacted on better promises. It's going on now. Jeremiah was looking forward to it. It was future to his time. But now to the Hebrews, the new covenant is in place. It is in effect and moving ahead. The condition of the covenant was already underway. The next thing we notice about the presentation in verse 8 is who's doing the presenting. It says, when I will effect a new covenant, the Lord is bringing this about. There's no contribution, no participation from man. This is solely God's work. We not only see who is causing it, but we see who is being presented to, namely to Israel and Judah. And this brings up a question to us. Does that mean that the new covenant was only to Israel? Or does that mean that somehow the church has replaced Israel? Or does that mean that there were two new covenants, one for Israel and one for us? No. There is one new covenant, and it is specifically written to Israel and Judah, and our text tells us. But because of their unfaithfulness, because of their shortcomings, the covenant has been, and the benefits have been extended to the church. If we want to find out where that occurs, go to Luke chapter 22 and the Lord's Supper. It is there that the Lord extends this to the church. Romans 9 and Romans 11 also mark the extensions of the new covenant from Israel to the church. And I'd encourage you to go and study these because they are really important texts for us to know. So the presentation is made and with it the first condition of the covenant. The second condition of the covenant occurs in verse 9, and it is the past. First the presentation, and now the past. The second condition of the past details God's past covenant with Israel. And the first thing we note about this past condition of the old covenant is that it's not like the new covenant. Specifically, not like the covenant made with the first generation Israelites. The covenant referenced is, is obviously the Mosaic one, which we've talked about, particularly God's taking them out of Egypt. Despite the change, notice the care which God took in the past. This incredible grace. He took them by the hand. The picture of a father taking an infant toddler by the hand. It's one of my favorite pictures to see a dad walking with his little toddler that's three or four years old, still a little wavy, but dad's got him right there and he's holding him by the hand. It's one of my favorite memories of my boys. They don't want to hold my hand anymore when we walk. I, I don't know. When I ask, they ridicule me for it, but I don't know. We'll talk about that later. But it is a beautiful picture of God's care and of his grace. It's even more beautiful as we understand God is leading them by the hand to deliver them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. More of his grace. This wasn't just a walk in the park. This was no peaceful journey. This was a walk to show them his power through the plagues. This was a walk to take them through the Red Sea as the Egyptian army threatened to destroy them. And God's care amidst all of this, his grace 
amidst judgment. But despite the tender care, they did not continue in God's covenant. More of the gentle language that we see here than in Jeremiah's account. But the real situation was that they rebelled and they broke God's covenant. The summary of the condition of the past, it was not pretty. God continued to extend his hand of grace to Israel and they continued to reject his benevolent offer. They rejected his grace. The presentation, the past, and our third condition in verse 10 is the plan. The plan. Verse 10 is really the heart of the conditions of the covenant. And we don't have time to adequately cover this point because there is so much to the rest of this as well as our third point of our message. So we'll come back to it next week. But there is a very important consideration for us today. First, we must recognize God's amazing grace as it has already been revealed to us. We, we see yet more depth to that grace, but already it is so magnificently displayed. God's grace is displayed in that first point, the coming of the covenant, because his grace reveals to us the fault the fault that exists in all of us, the problem of the old covenant and by application, the problem of our lives, that problem of sin. And we have to understand that as God showed us the failures of Israel, it was for our understanding. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 tells us that it was recorded so we would learn, so we would not repeat those same mistakes. As parents, isn't one of the most, most important lessons and the things that you most want your children to learn is that they would not repeat the mistakes that you have made? Well, that is exactly the same situation that is going on here. God is telling us about Israel so that we will not repeat those mistakes. We will not be rebellious. But in order to do so, beloved, we have to understand our sin. We are, by his glorious grace, brought to consider where we are in understanding our problem. Do we recognize, do you recognize your sin problem? If not, beloved, then it is time for you to realize that you need Christ, that you are a sinner and that you are separated from him. That his grace is not reaching you because you are living in rebellion and your problem is eternal. Or is your problem terminal that you think you're all fine? Uh, you know, I know that I've got some sins, but I pretty much got them under control, and I'm not too worried about that. No. There are sins that every one of us commit that we do not know that are an offense to our God. We must know them more so that we can grow in holiness. Only then do our sins become temporary. God's grace is further expressed in the first condition of our second point, the conditions of the covenant. We realize that, that this presentation was future to Jeremiah, but it is present to the church today. The covenant is presented to us. It stands before us today, and God is holding it out to you, saying, receive my word. Receive the covenant of grace that I have extended to you. The question is, are you receiving it? Are you understanding that today is the day of salvation? That there is no other name under heaven or on the earth by which men can be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. 
Are you living in that name? Are you professing that name on a daily basis? As Romans 10, 9 tells us that if we confess with our mouth Jesus Christ as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, those actions of confessing and believing, beloved, they are ongoing actions. Every day we're to be confessing Christ. Every day we're to be believing and growing in obedience. But these aren't just questions to ask ourselves. Because, beloved, we can deceive ourselves. We need help in this walk of faith. We need others who will walk alongside us, who will help disciple us. Beloved, these must be the questions y'all are asking yourselves. That's vital. But it's my fervent prayer each and every day as I pray for you specifically that these are the questions that you are asking not just to yourself, that you are asking others in our church, that you are growing in discipleship, that you are growing in your love for one another by sharing the difficulties that you have in your walk of faith. I know how desperately myself and the other elders want to help you in this walk. If you find that you don't have anyone to talk to, come and talk to us. We would love to speak with you about the importance of growing in obedience to Christ. Our goal is that God is maximally glorified in each of your lives because until he is, he will not be fully glorified in our church. And that is our goal, to see Christ magnified and glorified, to see the grace that he has extended to us, received and embraced and carried forth to the world around us. But it has to first be received. Pray that today you would understand Jesus Christ, that you would recognize your sin, and that you would desire more to look into his word and to see your life changed as you grow in obedience. May God be glorified as we seek to do just that.